Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thanks very much, and thank you uh, for coming out on, uh, as the Deputy Vice-Chancellor said, a very cold night, um, but uh, then again, that's life for those of us who live here in Canberra. Um, I thought I'd start by just saying a little bit about why, why I write this book. It's a question that has been asked, and there's a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, I thought it, have, have long thought it was a gap in our history, if you go into any bookstore or any library, you'll find scores of books on prime ministers individually and collectively. You'll find the odd book on individual treasurers, but none on the office, none on the 39 men, and so far we have all been men, unfortunately. That will one day, I'm sure, soon change. But uh, the 39 men who've held the second, what most people would regard as the second most important office in the country. So I'd long thought that this was a gap which one day, when I ever got the opportunity, I'd like to fill. Also, as somebody who's been treasurer and who hopes to be again, I figured I had some insight to bring to the project and also I'd benefit from the project. I want to be treasurer again and so it helps to understand the office much more closely. And Disraeli once said, if you want to understand something, write a book about it. I thought that was... Good advice. So after we lost the 2013 election, Louise Adler, the Chief Executive of Melbourne University Press, rang me and pressured me to write my memoirs of my time in the Cabinet. I said three things, Louise. Too much of that happening already, in my view. I intend to come back as a Cabinet Minister, so too early to write memoirs. And secondly, I'm too young to write memoirs in any event. But I've always wanted to write a history of the treasurers. How about that? And she, quick as a flash, said, I'll send you a contract tomorrow, which was very good of her. And so then the project began. I had to uh, then think pretty seriously about how to construct the book. I figured that there'd been 39 treasurers and it'd be too long to write about every single one of them and it would just be too long a book. And some were not treasurer for very long, didn't make a huge impact on the office. So I decided to choose a number, and I settled on 12, of the most interesting, notable treasurers. Not the best, necessarily, but the most notable. And I define notable a couple of ways. Most importantly, that the treasurer has some sort of lesson to teach us from their tenure. There was something to learn from their time in office. In some cases, it was because they were in office at a particularly stressful time in our economic history, a time which required some skill, and some had them and some didn't. Uh, or they were treasurer for a particularly long time, or they were a treasurer who did something new, tried something different, first of, their uh, first of the treasurers to do that. Or uh, there's a particular lesson which their failures might teach us. And so I settled on writing about the 12. Now, 
not all of the 12 were clear to begin with. For example, uh, one of the treasurers, the second treasurer in the book is William Watt, a man lost to history. Uh, and I didn't set out when I started uh, to write about him. So I frankly didn't know much about him at all. But as I was researching the chapter on Cyril Page, I found these references to Watt uh, through various reports at the time and, and there were little snippets to a very interesting story which I started when I finished the page chapter to look into and I found a fascinating story and decided to put him in. I'll talk a little bit more about William Watt later but um, a man who's been lost to history and a, a, and a story I wanted to tell. And some of the others chose themselves, Costello, Keating, uh, Theodore for example, uh, very formidable characters who really any history of the Treasury portfolio would not be complete without their story. And I'll say a little bit more about each of them. And there are plenty of anecdotes, plenty of stories in here, uh, plenty of interesting um, events which they dealt with. But perhaps more importantly, I think, are the lessons which I've tried to bring together out of the story of these 12 politicians. And the first and most important lesson, and again, I didn't intend this when I started to write The Money Men. I didn't set out with a thesis to support. Rather, I reached the conclusion while writing the book and found so much overwhelming evidence that it was a, a very strong conclusion that one of the keys to a successful treasurer is, frankly, a successful relationship with the Prime Minister. You can be uh, a sparkling intellect, a great debater, um, a fine economist, you'd be all of those things, but if you don't have the support of your Prime Minister, then you will fail. And there is a bit of a bargain between a Prime Minister and a Treasurer. A Treasurer's job is to push the envelope, to argue for reform internally, to be the one in the Cabinet who's saying we must do more and we must do better, to be arguing for the good outcomes, the good economic outcomes, the outcomes which can be difficult and can be unpopular. And a Prime Minister's job is to win an election. So there's a tension there between the two. Uh, but the successful partnerships reach a conclusion in which the Prime Minister lets the Treasurer win almost all the arguments. The Treasurer doesn't have to win every argument, but they have to win almost all the arguments internally in the Cabinet, all their positions untenable. But in return, that Prime Minister's got to be confident that the Treasurer can, having won the internal argument, win the external argument. It's going to be the treasurer who's going to be out there making the case. As John Howard said to me uh, when he very generously gave me his time uh, to be interviewed by the, for the book, a treasurer's got to be making the case every day for reform, every single day. And so there's a bargain between a prime minister and a treasurer. And there have been examples of where this, that partnership has worked exceptionally well, and there's been examples where it has failed miserably. And the Prime Minister and Treasurer don't actually need to like each other very much. They don't need to be friends. They may have at one stage be rivals and the Treasurer may still have the ambition for the job. But while they're in those jobs, they have to work effectively together in that partnership. And I think the best case, best practice partnerships have been Page and Bruce, the first coalition uh, in our history of two major parties, the Country Party and the Nationalist Party. They worked very closely together and it was very much an experiment. And if you look at coalition governments today, many of the hallmarks and elements you see were agreed by Page and Bruce as they put together 
their first administration and they've lasted through every Conservative government since. And Paige and Bruce remained lifelong friends and their partnership was very much best practice. Curtin and Chifley, uh, very, very effective partnership, firm friends, and Curtin relied on Chifley as his treasurer, not only in policy terms, uh, but on personal terms, as he navigated through World War II. And uh, I quote in the book uh, the note that Chifley received when he arrived one night after the long drive from Bathurst uh, for um, meetings in Canberra. It's a note from the Prime Minister uh, at uh, the Currajong Hotel. Uh, I'm down and brooding, please come. And uh, the treasurer hopped back in the car and drove over to the lodge and perked up his prime minister. And they could finish each other's sentences and worked very closely together. Uh, Hawke and Keating, of course, um, the most successful partnership between a prime minister and a treasurer when it came to economic reform. Uh, they asked the Australian people to embrace more economic change than any of their predecessors and any of their successors in that period. And uh, they had very complementary skills. They were both formidable communicators in their own way. There was plenty of tension between them, not only over the ultimate succession, but over policy. And uh, there was one particularly famous cabinet meeting after the first cabinet meeting, after Keating had conducted the Banana Republic interview. And he hadn't actually intended to do it. It's one of those interviews uh, where sort of it had taken a life of its own. But the Prime Minister was singularly unimpressed um, with his interview. And he was in Beijing and he convened a cabinet meeting uh, to haul the Treasurer over the coals and in front of the whole cabinet. And he, he said, reminded him, the cabinet that the Deputy Prime Minister was in charge, Lionel Bowen was in charge, not Paul Keating, and that policy had to be run through the cabinet. And uh, he was on the telephone from Beijing and... Uh, Paul uh, decided he'd respond and he started talking and Hawke pretended not to recognise his voice and said, who's that? <laughs> now, Keating's response is in the book. I'm not going to repeat it tonight because we're in polite company. Um, but it was pretty strong. And you can probably imagine some of the words that were involved. And then uh, the Cabinet colleague said, careful, Paul, the Chinese are listening. And he had a response to that as well. <laughs> so that, that's in here. But they were a very effective partnership. And Howard and Costello. Uh, Howard and Costello, again, in a similar way, they had their tensions, they had their disputes, and they had, certainly had their different views about succession. But they were both formidable communicators, and they were both very solid policy minds, uh, and they worked together very effectively. And uh, also, in a very different sense, and not so obviously not so successfully politically, but in a very close sense, Swan and Rudd during the global financial crisis, despite this very spectacular falling out of their relationship, it's very clear and a number of close commentators involved said their relationship worked for the global financial crisis, working together. And then Swan and Gillard developed a relationship as close as any prime minister and treasurer uh, and working very, very uh, closely and protective of each other. And some examples of the relationship which didn't work. I talked before about William Watt. Um, William Watt's, uh, the subtitle to his chapter is um, A Treasurer in Conflict. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for William Watt. William Watt was one of, uh, Billy Hughes had a range of treasurers and a whole number of treasurers. William Watt was just one of them. 
uh, his first treasurer was uh, Sir John Forrest. Uh, and poor old Sir John was getting old and um, uh, Hughes was getting frustrated and Watt was getting frustrated. And so they decided between them, they had a, came up with a plan to move Forrest on. Now, Forrest was a very formidable figure in Australian history, the first Premier of Western Australia, an explorer, um, and uh, not a man who could easily be cast aside. And so they decided it was appropriate to ennoble him. So they recommended to the king uh, that he be created Lord Forrest of Bunbury. <laughs> I'm not joking, it's all, it's all very serious. And the king agreed. And uh, so, it, so it occurred that Forrest duly resigned as treasurer and what was appointed. Tragically, uh, Forrest died on the boat on the way to the House of Lords and was never ennobled. Uh, and if he had, it's arguable that Andrew Forrest would be Lord Forrest, um, because he's, he's Sir John's great, great, great nephew. Um, anyway, what becomes treasurer? And then, uh, and then uh, in those days, being treasurer was effectively deputy prime minister. There was no separate office of deputy prime minister. The treasurer was automatically the second most senior person in the government. And uh, Hughes decided to go off and negotiate the peace. And to, at London and Versailles, be Australia's personal. The Prime Minister would represent the nation at the peace, and uh, I won't spoil the rest of the story. But the relationship breaks down spectacularly uh, as Hughes and Watt quarrel over who was running the government, uh, whether it would be Watt from Melbourne or Hughes from Versailles. Uh, and I, I found the cables between them, and I must say, a hundred years later, they bristle. Uh, on the page before you um, as they enter into probably the most significant dispute between a Prime Minister and a Treasurer in our history via cable between Melbourne and London and Versailles and uh, what eventually resigned as Treasurer from London. What then went to London, Hughes came home and what resigned from London in a fit of pique and anger at the Treasurer, at the Prime Minister. So that, that's, one, that's probably the most spectacular example of a relationship which broke down. Uh, and also Cairns and Whitlam obviously broke down, and I'll say a little bit more about Cairns. Uh, another lesson is, of course, that judgment is more important than intelligence. I'm not saying that intelligence is unimportant in a treasurer, uh, but judgment is very important. And Cairns is the most spectacular example of that. Our most academically prepared treasurer, a Bachelor of Commerce, a Master of Commerce, and a Doctor of Philosophy uh, in Economic History, uh, he had been a successful trade minister, he was deputy prime minister, and on paper you would think, well, he'll make a decent fist of being treasurer, and he was not a good treasurer. And he'd lasted six months before having to be dismissed, really the only treasurer who's actually formally been dismissed uh, from the ministry by the prime minister. Uh, and he was deputy prime minister at the time as well, you know, for a whole range of reasons, but the judgment uh, didn't accompany him to the office, and he had um, he had not been appointed for the right reasons. Uh, he had been appointed because he had undermined Crean as treasurer, and tried to rewrite his budget, despite the fact he wasn't treasurer. And Whitlam said to him, "Well, if you uh, are going to undermine the treasurer, you can take the job yourself." Uh, the relationship between the treasurer and the treasury is very important. The treasurer has to push the treasury to hold their ideas to the light, to question them, to argue with them to contest them, uh, but when the Treasurer is convinced of the arguments and he's satisfied that they are the right ones, then to take them to the Cabinet and win. And again, it's a partnership. And there have been examples 
of that partnership that's worked very well, Keating and Treasury. Again, Keating never took a Treasury submission without question. He never argued it without understanding it. There were plenty of spectacular disagreements between Keating and the Treasury, and most notably on the float of the dollar. But when he was satisfied, then he would go into the Cabinet and he'd win. Uh, and there are other examples, again, in the book, where the relationship did, uh, between the Minister and his department did not work. Howard and Treasury did not work. Cairns and Treasury clearly did not work. So there's some of the, uh, some of the lessons. Now, just an, uh, a word on each Treasurer. Uh, Sir George Turner, our first Treasurer, pioneer, a dour character, but a very important man in our history. He raced as much as anybody raced in 1901, um, anywhere from Melbourne to Sydney to tell the Governor-General, the new Governor-General, that he was wrong on his appointment of Prime Minister and he would not serve as Premier of Victoria in the new Cabinet if the, the Governor-General's pick as Prime Minister lasted. And the Governor-General in the first constitutional crisis, the Constitution had not yet come into force, we had our first constitutional crisis and the first pick as Prime Minister uh, had to not proceed. Uh, and then uh, Turner then proceeded to establish the Treasury and set up some mechanisms uh, for relationships with the new states and convened a meeting of the Heads of Treasury, which still occurs today, it's called HOTS, the Heads of Treasury meeting, um, and was very much a pioneer of the office. William Watt I've spoken about, this is the second uh, Treasurer in the book, uh, Sir Earl Page, a fine treasurer, the first country party treasurer, an eccentric character, um, had his own little foibles. He believed passionately in creating new states and uh, was the, one of the first Australians to own a motor car and had very many sort of eccentric features, um, but was a good treasurer. And many of the current debates about federalism, uh, we, we can learn a lot from Sir Earl Page's views. He, uh, he uh, was proactive in trying to get a solution to the federal state financial relations. And he said in his first budget in the 1920s that uh, it was wrong for the states to have to spend money that they didn't raise. And the current treasurer said something almost word for word identical the other day. I don't think it was intentionally <laughs> quoting Sir Earl Page, but it just shows that we can't navigate the future unless we understand the past. Uh, Ted Theodore, a remarkable man, uh, treasurer two days before the Wall Street crash. Uh, a fierce intellect, he knew the answers. A Keynesian before Keynes, he stood at the dispatch box in the House of Representatives. Uh, the general theory had not yet been published, but Keynes's treatise on money was published. He was the first Australian to have a copy. He stood at the dispatch box, held up Keynes's um, treatise on money and said, this book will dominate macroeconomic thinking for the next 50 years. And he was right to the day, in effect. and. Uh, he knew the answers. He was not um, academically trained. He left school very early, 14. And uh, he worked out how to deal with the Great Depression. He was frustrated at every turn. The Labor Party was split, did not have a majority in the Senate. The Commonwealth Bank, which was then the central bank, behaved appallingly and, and stopped him from implementing his policies. He worked out that there was not enough money in the economy. And he introduced a bill into the parliament called the Fiduciary Notes Bill which was what we would call today quantitative easing. He was 100% right. And uh, the Conservatives blocked him in the Senate and said he'd create inflation like Weimar Germany. And there's a classic scene as he's introducing this bill, which many commentators have said, uh, tragically, of course, we have no footage, but have said it was the finest speech ever delivered in the House of Representatives. Uh, but as he finished, 
conservative supporters in the galleries threw down fake money onto the floor of the House of Representatives as a protest against this money that he was going to be printing, and they said he'd create inflation. He was brought down by a politically inspired Royal Commission. Um, <laughs> an extraordinary story, the uh, Queensland Conservative Government um, uh, handpicked a Royal Commissioner um, who was conservative-leaning. Uh, the Royal Commissioner subpoenaed him to give evidence. He wrote and said, I'm bringing down a federal budget in a fortnight, in the middle of the Great Depression. Do you think I can have a fortnight's uh, leeway? He was in Canberra, and the Royal Commission was being held in Brisbane. Getting from Canberra to Brisbane was a very serious undertaking in those days. And the Royal Commissioner said, no, if you are not here to give evidence, I will find on your matter without you. And he did, and he found him guilty of corruption without hearing his evidence, and he had to resign as treasurer in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, a great loss to the nation because the Depression would have been a lot less severe if he'd been able to implement his policies. He tried to introduce an independent reserve bank uh, 30 years before it finally occurred, and again he, the Conservatives in the Senate blocked it from occurring and said that we didn't need an independent reserve bank in Australia. A man way ahead of his time. Uh, ben Chifley, uh, inspiring to labour, a wonderful man, humble, um, a great individual in so many ways, but frankly a flawed treasurer in that he was haunted by the past, haunted by the depressions that he'd lived through, his grandfather had lived through, haunted by the appalling behaviour of the private banks and was spooked. Um, when the banks started to unpick his, his bank regulation and decided to nationalise the banks uh, in one of, uh, you know, a, a policy blunder and a political blunder. Um, and we talk about political communication. The Cabinet met and decided to nationalise the banks because Chief was worried that bank regulation would start falling apart. He went around the room and they said, every Cabinet Minister said, we back you, we back you, Chief, we back your decision, yes. And he issued a two-line press release which said, and I quote, the Cabinet met tonight and decided to nationalise the banks, full stop. That was the announcement. And there was no follow-through. And of course, a, a great um, conflagration ensued. Uh, Chifley lost his seat as a councillor on the Abershire um, Shire Council as Prime Minister in the protest against bank nationalisation. He went on to lose the election. Uh, Artie Fadden who I think is the, the, the claim to the being the first Keynesian treasurer is a contested one. There's a few people who can have a claim, Percy Spender, a few others, but um, Artie Fadden was unquestionably the first Keynesian to actually use a budget to try and contract the economy uh, in the horror budget. Uh, he was the first one to actually try and dampen economic behaviour by bringing down a budget surplus. He didn't actually end up delivering a budget surplus, there was no budget surpluses between the end of the war and 1987. Uh, but he budgeted for one, and it was entirely unpopular. I'm not sure if he invented the term, I called a meeting of my friends, but the telephone booth wasn't full after he delivered the budget, but he certainly said it. Uh, and, and an intriguing man and a good, uh, a good treasurer. And interestingly, when, again, when I spoke to John Howard, he asked me which treasurers I was writing about, and I said fat, and he said, not halt. I said, no, that's right, I've decided not to write about Holt. He said, that's a good decision. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, then we skip to Jim Cairns. I've spoken about uh, Jim Cairns, um, a well-intentioned man, a good man, um, right on so many issues. He argued in the 1950s that Australia should recognise the People's Republic of China, in the 1950s. Um, way ahead of his time on, on many things, but a flawed treasurer and uh, um, uh, a lesson in uh, what it takes to be a good treasurer and what's not. Uh, Bill Hayden, his successor, a superb treasurer and a wonderful man. Uh, a treasurer only for six months, uh, but he brought down the budget, which was eventually blocked in the Senate, bringing about the dismissal, which the new government, the Fraser government, passed within an hour of taking office. They had no objection to the budget itself. He brought massive growth in government spending under control by the standards at the time. He reduced the growth in government spending from 45% to 25%. Um, but still, as I joked with Paul Ke I rang Paul Kelly when I was writing this chapter, and I said, I've just um, quoted you in my book. He said, oh, what, what did you say? And uh, I said, well, I found this, uh, I said, this was a point where Joe Hockey and I were arguing about government uh, spending growing, whether it should grow at 2.8% per annum or 3.5%. I said, I found where you praised Bill Hayden's courage for bringing the growth in government spending down from 45% to 25%, and you say he's shown enormous judgment and management skills in doing so. He said, yes, I did say that, and it was right at the time, but you know, life's moved on. But he also had a, an enormous sense of social justice. In his six months as treasurer, as well as getting government spending under control, he completely rewrote the tax system and got rid of a lot of regressive taxes and um, tax concessions which benefited the wealthy primarily and made the tax system fairer. And if he'd been treasurer for the entire Whitlam government, I think the history of the Whitlam government would have been a lot, more, a lot different and the history of Australia would have been different. He doesn't quite agree with that. He says, yes, but uh, the big advantage I had was that I could threaten to resign if I didn't get my way and Gough couldn't afford to lose three treasurers. <laughs> he said if I was the first treasurer and threatened to resign, Gough would have said, okay. Uh, and that was his big advantage in his view. Uh, then John Howard. Uh, now, in, uh, in, in no sense can John Howard's time as treasurer be regarded as a success. He was the only treasurer to leave office with uh, double-digit inflation and unemployment. Um, he came, it's easy to forget now. If you look at this picture of John Howard, when he became treasurer, you can't see it, but if you've got the book, have a look. <laughs> it's easy to forget now, he's been around so long, just how young and inexperienced he was as treasurer. He was treasurer at the age of 38, which is in and of itself not unremarkable. Uh, Peter Costello, Paul Keating and myself all became treasurer at 38 or 39. Um, but he'd only been in parliament three years and he was not in cabinet when he became treasurer. He was a junior minister. He was in effect assistant treasurer. It wasn't called that then, but that was the equivalent role. Uh, and Philip Lynch had to resign in the midst of a scandal in the middle of the 1977 election and Fraser needed somebody to do the job. And so he tapped Howard. And there's speculation and conjecture as to why. Howard was undertaking the role of campaign spokesman in economics, so there was a continuity to it, but some people argue that he chose Howard because he could dominate him uh, and he could control the Treasury as Prime Minister. And Howard accepts that that might have been the case, but he also says, I think fairly, that it wasn't the overwhelming reason. He grew in the job. When he started, he had obviously pro-business instincts, but not pro-free market. He was high tariff, highly protectionist Treasurer in his early days. 
Uh, in the early days, he did not believe in financial deregulation. This great feud between Fraser and Howard as to who believed in financial deregulation. Howard did not believe in financial deregulation uh, in his first half of the period as Treasurer. He came to believe it later. He grew as Treasurer. He developed his economic thinking. He became a dry. He eventually argued to Fraser for financial deregulation, but by then Fraser had lost a lot of political capital, was no longer dominant, had been challenged by Andrew Peacock, Hawke was on the horizon, and Fraser just wasn't prepared to take the risks. And also fundamentally didn't believe in it. Was fundamentally a country party prime minister. Fraser, although he's a liberal, all his mates were country party. He lived in the country. He was an old style protectionist, regulationist liberal. Uh, and so, and again, that's a relationship which didn't work. And I think Howard drew on the lessons of a relationship which didn't work to teach him what to do for a relationship which would work uh, a few years later. Then uh, Paul Keating. Well, uh, as I said, nobody has asked the Australian people to engage in more reform, more change than Paul Keating. He too grew in the job. He too developed his instincts in the job. Uh, but he had a remarkable grasp of the English language, uh, which he put to work, he, which I think he, I, I argue, he learnt at his time working for the Sydney County Council, um, you know, uh, knocking around with people, uh, also his, his fierce intelligence. But again, the pattern of Theodore and Keating and Hayden, self-taught men, uh, Theodore and Keating both left school very early. Uh, Hayden matriculating while a cop on the beat and then winning his economics degree in the parliamentary library late at night, self-taught, uh, but all three of them remarkable judgment. And uh, I argue in the book that in my, object, in my analysis, uh, Keating is the best treasurer in our history for that reason. And then Costello. Now Costello disagrees with the previous conclusion I just shared with you. <laughs> Costello was a, our longest serving treasurer in history. Uh, I don't think he can be regarded as the father of the long boom. I think that, that honour goes to Keating. He was a solid treasurer, a competent treasurer, across the detail, but he was not a reformer. The GST uh, was Howard's creation, not Costello's. Uh, he implemented it. He understood it very well, and he argued for it very well, but it was not his creation. I think Keating, uh, Costello's uh, contribution is that he changed the Australian perception of surpluses and deficits. And we, you may like or dislike that contribution, but I think that's what he did. I said before, there was no budget surplus between 1949 and 1987. Keating brought down the first, and then he brought down three. Costello then equated surplus with good economic management in the public mind. And he used his formidable communication skills and his experience as a lay preacher and um, the son of the church to where he you know, was used to standing at the pulpit and arguing he, to proselytise in favour of budget surpluses. And he was treasurer at a time where it was almost impossible not to bring down a budget surplus uh, with um, uh, the terms of trade uh, that we had. Um, but I do rate him in, in, in what I call in the book honourable mentions uh, because he was competent, uh, but I don't think his, his period can be regarded as one of great reform. And finally, Wayne Swan. Uh, now, I served under 
my own as assistant treasurer when he was treasurer, so um, I saw some of this close up. I'll just say of Wayne Swan that um, obviously uh, his record is partly mixed because many of his reforms were overturned by an incoming government, uh, but I can think of, um, there, are, there is no treasurer in our history who can say that they faced a recession which was inevitable and defeated it. No treasurer can say that except for Wayne. Um, many treasurers when they see a recession come, for those of you who enjoy a surf, you know, duck under the wave and hope to come out the other side. Uh, Wayne sort of dove into the wave and beat it. Uh, and it was quite remarkable. And so regardless of um, the successes or failures of the rest of his treasurership, um, that was a remarkable success. And uh, everybody thought a recession was inevitable, and it was. Uh, but yet the stimulus package which was embarked upon uh, actually worked. And uh, they are the 12 treasurers who uh, are um, noted in the book. And again, there are plenty of stories in there, plenty of um, anecdotes, but uh, which I found fascinating, uh, but I find the lessons even more fascinating. And uh, as I said before, I don't think we can navigate the future unless we understand the past. And this book is my contribution to help me understand the past better and hopefully allow you to understand the past better as well. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm told I'm moderating the questions. So. I'd like to raise your hands. We'll come to you. One up the back there. Thank you very much. It was a very interesting talk. Um, I'm just curious, it's probably um, something that maybe everybody's thinking. Um, it was nice hearing your views on uh, past uh, treasurers, but I'm curious your uh, view on the current treasurer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a view. <laughs> and I've tried to, to keep this book out of the modern partisan political debate because, look, I'm a, I'm a partisan. I'm a proud son of the Labor Party. I've been a member of the Labor Party for 29 years. So um, uh, I do uh, very much respect the Labor legacy and think there are important things for Labor to draw on in the past. Um, and I've tried to be fair and objective. Others will disagree about, you know, the conclusions, but I've tried to be fair and objective. About the current Treasurer, being treasurer requires a command of detail. You, know, you have to be across everything in your portfolio and it requires a consistency of communication. Settling on a communication uh, message to the Australian people about the state of the economy and what sort of reforms are necessary and sticking to it and prosecuting it and winning the arguments. Keating and Costello style approach. Tenacity and an ability to communicate, show empathy to show that these changes aren't easy, that we understand the resistance, but to explain nevertheless why it's so necessary and why even people who might be in the short term adversely affected, in the long term, the whole nation benefits. Uh, I'll leave you to judge how the current incumbent <laughs> measures up, um, but my judgment isn't if I write the second edition in you know, 20 years' time or something, I don't think I'll be entirely complimentary.
Chris, the, the early treasurers lived in a much simpler world and um, eventually, I think it was in the term of the Fraser government, we created this thing called a Minister for Finance and the number of Treasury Ministers grew in a way which is not dissimilar to what we saw we've seen in the UK with, you know, even with the persistence with the quaint office of the Paymaster General. Um, do you see the jobs changed since the, um, the creation of this sister expenditure and asset management department and um, how do you see that relationship going forward in determining the um, effectiveness of treasuries reflected on the relationship with the Prime Minister? Do you think this is the next most important relationship that a treasurer might need to have in the future? Uh, yes. Um, yes, the role has changed since the creation of the Minister for Finance in 1977. I mean, inevitably, it has to change because this role has been created. I don't think, though, that it's reduced the importance of the treasurer. In fact, it's probably freed the treasurer up to be concentrating on the things the treasurer needs to be concentrating on. And they are partners, but they're not equal partners. You know, the, the finance minister works closely with the treasurer, but the treasurer at the end of the day is the senior minister. And despite the creation of the Ministry for Finance, the treasurer of Australia still has their hands on the economic levers much more than most ministers for finance around the world. In most countries, the minister for finance is the treasurer equivalent. But when you look around the world and look at the responsibilities of the Australian Treasurer, the Australian Treasurer has, has a much bigger portfolio than most of their contemporaries. So the Treasurer has, just to run through a few, apart from the Treasury, you've got the Reserve Bank. Now, yes, the Reserve Bank's independent, but the Treasurer appoints the Governor and the Board. So shapes the Reserve Bank. The Foreign Investment Review Board. In many countries, that is not part of the Treasury portfolio. It's a part of an industry portfolio. Um, ASIC, APRA, the ACCC, all answer to the Treasurer. The Mint, less important, but um, in, many, in many other countries, I mean, the Chancellor doesn't have these responsibilities in the UK. There's a Business Secretary in the UK, as well as the other officers. So I don't think the importance of the Treasurer has been diminished. I think it's been actually probably enhanced by the creation of a Minister for Finance. A Treasurer and a, and a Minister for Finance do need to work very closely together, and in my experience, do. I mean, on both sides, I've not seen many examples of, a, of conflict. Yes, there's always a difference of view and a contest of ideas, and that's what the roles are for. You, you want to test the ideas um, and argue and, and test each other, uh, but at the end of the day, work closely together with each other, and I think, I think by and large, they do. Who else? I was just wondering, did you assess each treasurer according to the major economic indicators of the time? Yes and no, um, because it only tells you a little bit of the story. I mean, a treasurer is in command and control to some degree, but of course they're riding the wave. So if you went through and said, well, which treasurer had the lowest unemployment, the lowest inflation, and you know they're the better ones, it's, it's, it's not an accurate reflection. I mean, you can't judge Theodore and and uh, others who dealt with massive crises with those treasurers who were rolling along in the good times and the quiet times. Um, it's the tough times which have really tested some of the treasurers. 
and some have come out looking you know, very, very good indeed, like Theodore. Um, uh, so there's there's some of that. You know, I do look at the economic indicators, but but I don't belabor the point because uh, it's really unfair, I think, to to treasurers to have a scorecard based on you know who got the lowest unemployment. It's, it, it is too heavily impacted by the international circumstances. Mm. I think down here, sir. Oh, oh, here and then there, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I've got the book on order from the library, but after your presentation, I'll buy one on the way out. <laughs> um, but just one uh, point. A couple of times you mentioned that the first surplus was in 1987, I think. Mm. But, but that's just a figment of the accounting practices. All through the 50s and 60s, there were huge surpluses by today's standards, and that's what helped us repay 100% of the nation's the well, debt that was equivalent to 100% of GDP after the Second World War. Well, it's an interesting question and actually one that I belaboured and uh, Selwyn's here and Selwyn is Australia's preeminent living economic historian. Um, and uh, I was very grateful because uh, interpreting economics from 100 years ago sometimes has its challenges and I could ring up Selwyn and say, this is my conclusion, but have I got this right? And he would uh, very graciously provide his feedback. And at one point I rang Selwyn up and said, I'm trying to work out how many budget surpluses there have been since the war. And it's all very complex because accounting mechanisms have changed and definitions have changed. And in, in the old days, we used to worry about domestic surpluses and international surpluses, a, a distinction we don't make anymore. Um, but both Selwyn and I came to the conclusion that the first post-war surplus was 1987. Now, you are right to this degree that surpluses were at one stage unpopular. And treasurers did used to go to some lengths to hide them. Um, because it was seen as theft of the Australian people, that we were paying too much tax. <laughs> you know, uh, and so uh, if, yeah, if, a, if a treasurer brought down a surplus, the question was, well, why, why don't you reduce our tax then? And so uh, there was a little bit of shifting of money around um, to try and hide surpluses, that is true. Uh, but uh, it is the case that 1951 and 1955 have budgeted four surpluses, which didn't eventuate, and the first surplus which actually eventuated in the post-war era was 1987 with, and again, Sue and I had this long conversation. On, on some judge, in some tests, three surpluses, in some tests, four. I've gone with three, but um, because it's a grey area, I disclose that some people argue there were four, and then 1996, consistently with one exception. It was here. Um, Chris, uh, I was interested in your comments on Peter Costello as being competent. Do you think he lacked imagination and not really moving to oust Howard? And if he had led the Liberals against Rudd, could he have won? And if so, who would have been his treasurer? <laughs> uh, did he, well, this is more a political question. Um, yes, he, I mean, yes, clearly, uh, you know, he kept talking about challenging Howard. That was the problem and never actually did it. Now, yes, he would have lost, but so did Keating. And there was absolutely no certainty that Keating was ever going to become Prime Minister. I mean, he took a huge gamble by challenging, and he lost. And um, as he tells the story, uh, in late 1991, he challenged in mid-1991, and in late 1991, his colleagues came around to see him as the parliament was about to get up, and he'd packed up all his 
pictures off the wall and he's in a backbencher's office, backbench office 101, and um, all these trinkets and his books in boxes. And they said, how come you're packed up? He said, well, I'm out. I'm, I'm gone. I'm, I'm, this is not going to happen. I'm, I'm going to pull the pin Christmas time. I'm going to announce I'm going. Was, challenge isn't working. He said only then did they concentrate the mind that uh, it's time to bring this on. So it was by no means certain that he would win. And if Costello had challenged and lost and gone on the back bench, who knows whether he eventually would have won a second challenge or not. Would he have won the 2010 election? Yes. Would Costello have won the 2010 election? Yes, in my view. He would have won the 2010 election and been Prime Minister. Um, certainly after we'd removed Kevin as Prime Minister um, and probably beforehand as well. Um, who would have been his treasurer? That's an interesting question. I, I don't know. Not Tony Abbott. I know that. <laughs> uh, hmm. Who would have you picked as treasurer? Um, I don't know. I'm not sure that anybody's ever asked him what he would have done. Because Nick Minchin, the finance minister, the outgoing finance minister, was in the Senate, so he wasn't available. Hmm. I don't know. I have to think about that a little bit and perhaps he ask him. He might have. Well, Ben Shifley was the last Prime Minister to serve concurrently as Treasurer, and Keating did think about it and had to be talked out about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, hi, Chris. Thanks for your remarks on your book. It was quite interesting. I've, I've already read quite a bit of it. Thank you. Um, my question is uh, relating to the first Treasurer, the Sir George Turner. He was the Premier of Victoria, mm. and he was also Treasurer of Victoria. Mm. And I'm just wanting to know some of your thoughts about how the role of the federal treasurer relates to the state treasurers and how that has changed from Australia being a federation of six states to more of a stronger federal nation that we are today. Yeah, there's only two treasurers in the book who served as state treasurers and they're both the first two, Turner and Watt. Uh, it was in those days a sort of natural progression which we don't do anymore. And it is extraordinarily hard now to be senior at the state level and then make the transition to the federal level. Just logistically very hard. And a few premiers have thought about it, but it's very hard. Neville Rand couldn't do it. He wanted to come to Canberra and be Prime Minister, but he couldn't work through the logistics. Um, I think the in those I think the reason one of the reasons is in those days the roles were more similar in that they were much more accounting roles. Account, making them the books add up. Turner in particular was an accountant. And um, he set up the Treasury as an accounting body. There were no economists in the Treasury. It was all accountants. And a series of Treasurers can claim some credit for professionalising the Treasury. Um, Chifley, Fadden, Spender, um, and indeed to some degree, Theodore went to the Treasury and seeking advice and got none because there were just no economists there. And so in those days, I think there were much more similar roles and the role of the colonial treasurer or the state treasurer was to make the books add up and the role of the federal treasurer was the same. Over time, the role of the federal treasurer has obviously emerged and evolved into being an economic manager, um, manipulating economic activity. Uh, that's really been the case probably from Theodore onwards. And in that sense, the roles diverted from the state treasurers, who still, of course, you know, want to ensure low unemployment in their states, but they are, they are very much not really macroeconomic managers, as a federal treasurer is. I think we have one last question over there. Chris, given that we have a current preoccupation with growth, 
Is this a help or a hindrance to drive the reform agenda? Well, um, I, th I actually think the two go together. I think you, you reform for growth. I mean, reform is not reform for reform's sake. You reform to make the economy more efficient to drive more growth. Uh, because growth is what lifts people out of poverty. Growth is what turns aspiration into reality. Uh, growth is the, is the most effective anti-poverty program ever invented. And so reform must be only ever implemented either to promote fairness or to promote growth. And uh, um, growth must always be seen as the, as the ends and reform the means. Reform is not an end. And not all change is reform. I've, I've checked the dictionary. <laughs> reform is positive change. And you can have change which is not reform. And it is positive change if it engenders a more strongly growing and fairer economy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Chris, uh, thanks very much for coming to the ANU tonight to talk about your latest book, The, the Money Men. The Money Men is a scholarly work. It, it's not a political memoir uh, or a political tract. Uh, it's a very good read. Uh, it's based on extensive research interviews with former treasurers and is written in very clear prose and I'm sure the audience uh, here this evening would be impressed to learn that you endorse Benjamin uh, Disraeli's dictum that the best way to become acquainted with a subject is to write a book about it. And so accordingly you wrote a book in order to learn more about the job you once held and aspire to hold once again, namely Treasurer of Australia. Uh, no doubt in writing the book, uh, you've found uh, much that's instructive. Uh, you've mentioned uh, many of your conclusions here tonight. Uh, for example, the importance of maintaining a good working relationship between Treasurer and Prime Minister, which seems to be a very fundamental uh, point that comes out of the, out of the book. Uh, let me mention uh, two things very briefly that I found to be particularly interesting as I read uh, the Money Men. Uh, I think you've briefly touched on various bits and pieces of the two points, but uh, the first point is that although several of the more notable treasurers, Theodore, Chifley, Fadden, Hayden, Keating, for example, left school at a, a relatively young age, uh, Theodore at uh, 13 or 14, uh, Chifley, Fadden, Hayden and Keating at 14 or, or 15, they remained lifelong learners. Generally, they were great readers of books, voracious readers uh, in some cases. They made a point of seeking out expert opinion. They continued to study. Keating studied for his HSC at night school, uh, sometime after leaving school. Uh, Hayden decided to enrol in an economics degree externally through the University of Queensland after he became a Member of Parliament. Fadden later acquired accountancy qualifications and Chifley was always taking uh, courses at um, various technical colleges. They possessed curious minds. They were always trying to understand the nature of things, as we try to do at the ANU. Uh, the second point is that 
they frequently risked their careers and their government's popularity by taking decisions that they considered to be in the national interest. Here, for example, I think of Theodore's endorsement of the Premier's plan. Now, Theodore, it, uh, it wasn't his favourite plan, as, as you mentioned, but um, uh, his plan, the fiduciary uh, issue plan, um, was not possible because the Senate uh, would not approve it, and he fell back on the Premier's plan. And without his endorsement of the Premier's plan, it's quite possible that the Scullin government would not have adopted that plan. Keynes, for example, said, and I quote, the Premier's plan saved Australia. And I agree with that. And uh, Theodore's endorsement uh, of it was extremely important. Um, it uh, helped, I think, him to lose his seat a few months later and he never returned uh, to Parliament. I think uh, of Chifley advocating Australia's membership of the IMF and World Bank at a time when he didn't have the support of his party on this issue. It took him three years to turn his party around. And even then, six cabinet ministers voted against Australia's membership of the IMF and World Bank. Australia uh, is not well known. Australia was not a, an original member of the IMF and World Bank. We were allowed uh, three, uh, two years after the uh, closing um, date for original membership to join on the original terms, but we were not an original member. But Chifley fought extremely hard against Eddie Ward and other members of the left wing um, to get Australia uh, as, as a member of the, um, of the Bretton Woods um, institutions. I think of Fadden bringing down the horror budget in 1951, aimed at reducing Australia's record inflation rate, um, a record that still, still stands. And within a year or two of the horror budget, uh, inflation came down to very low levels and we then had two decades of, um, of prosperity. I think of Hayden in cabinet submission after cabinet submission throughout the period of the Whitlam government, desperately trying to convince his, his colleagues of the importance of taking inf the inflation problem seriously. Uh, it's true that Hayden was treasurer for only six months, uh, but throughout uh, 1973 and 74, uh, he was acting treasurer on a number of occasions and he made a number of cabinet submissions. In one, he said, and I quote, the people of Australia will never forgive us if we don't get inflation under control. And I think of Ke uh, Keating, uh, and we might disagree here a bit, but I think of Keating using colourful phrases as the banana republic and the recession we had to have to convince his colleagues and the trade unions and ultimately the electorate that Australia was facing grave economic problems and unpopular measures had to be adopted, including higher interest rates, cutting real wages, raising taxes and reducing government expenditure, and Keating did all of those things. These, uh, for me, are examples of genuine leadership and the treasurers that I've mentioned deserve the respect that Chris has accorded them uh, in this very impressive book um, that he's talked about tonight. So Chris, uh, thank you for writing the book. 
and thank you for coming to the ANU this evening to discuss the, um, the money men with us. And I think that if I'm right, uh, you're happy to sign a few more copies of the, of the book after we, um, after we wrap up. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.